Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Over the past few years, China has placed an estimated 1.5 million Uyghurs, Kazakhs and members of other Muslim minorities into what Beijing describes as vocational training centres. China says the centres, in Xinjiang province, are vital weapons in its war on terror, where religious extremism can be wiped out while people simultaneously learn valuable skills. UN experts and Western academics, however, say there is evidence to show that the centres are extra-legal internment camps and part of an elaborate scheme aimed at diluting Muslim religious and cultural traditions and assimilating the population into a Han Chinese way of life. Our correspondent in China, Peter Goff, has been to visit these centres in Xinjiang and he's here in studio on a visit home to Ireland to tell us about what he saw and what his impressions were. Peter, welcome home. Thank you, Chris. Um, before we get into what you saw at these centres and, and you found on your, on your visit there, tell us first a bit about Xinjiang province. Where is it exactly and how does its ethnic makeup differ from, from that of the rest of China? Xinjiang is in the northwest um, part of China. It's a huge uh, province. It's this four times the size of Germany, has a population of about 22 million or so, almost half of whom are uh, Uyghur. There's also many other ethnic minorities there like Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Tartar, Russians, Mongols and so on um, and of course um, Han Chinese. In Across China, Han Chinese typically make up about 94% of the population but in the Xinjiang province uh, they're, they're about 40%. So how did your visit to Xinjiang and to these uh, centres, um, how did that come about? These centres, the news came to light about two years ago And initially, the Chinese government denied their existence. Uh, But increasingly, more and more reports were coming out from uh, people who had been in these camps and then who had got out of the province and out of the country. And there were more and more independent uh, reports uh, confirming their existence. And UN uh, UN experts did some research into it. And so did uh, human rights groups. And eventually... I think there was such a, a groundswell of opinion that these were, were in existence and the government was put into a corner and they, then after about two years they did acknowledge that they were in existence. They, however, said they were not re-education camps per se, they were vocational training centres. So then they went and they changed their policy from denying them to uh, basically trying to justify them. And as part of the justification, they, they organised uh, several... Uh, trips for diplomats and journalists to come and see some of these centres and I was invited on one of these trips. Now they're obviously quite choreographed uh, events where you're only allowed to see certain things. It's heavily uh, uh, curtailed uh, but still you can get, um, it, it did allow us access to two of these camps. And tell us more about, uh, you, you, you told us Sarah how China changed the description if you like of the centres but what does China say these centres are for? Well, now they say they're de-radicalization centers uh, and essentially are there, there with the twin purpose to, uh, to take extremists and to, to re-educate them and to um, sort of, um, put them back on the proper path, the right path that they say that they should and assimilate more into a Chinese uh, lifestyle. And also they say they're training camps where they teach them some skills. They teach them the Chinese language uh, and Mandarin and they also teach them some vocational skills as well as the, the laws and the regulations of China. And does China say that people attend these centres voluntarily or that they're detained there? 
Yes, China insists that everyone attends voluntarily. And when we went to the camps, we were allowed to interview numerous people uh, in the camps, and they all said that they were ver- there voluntarily. However, when you speak to uh, independent assess- people who've made independent assessments and human rights groups, they say that generally what happens is people are picked up and brought into detention centres first and they are then um, interrogated in these detention centres and they're accused potentially of various crimes and they're often given a choice of going to a prison and getting a full criminal charge or as some kind of um, a sort of deal for them that they they are offered uh, an opportunity to go into these camps, the vocational camps, which would be considered a, a much lesser punishment than a prison sentence. And um, so what kind of access then when you were there were you given to the people who, who were in the centres? We were allowed to uh, visit the classrooms and we saw them um, we saw them in, the, in their classrooms to, um, in the various uh, sort of vocational centres and so on and the, where they were, some were sewing and some were learning how to uh, you know, hair salons and uh, learning how to manicure and pedicure and so on, some uh, electrics, doing electrical work and so, and, um, and then other classes, typical classroom environments where they're learning language and, like I said, the law. And then we were allowed to have brief conversations with them, with the public security officials present. They uh, all had pretty much parroted answers to any questions we asked, uh, and they were very similar to questions that uh, journalists had asked previously in other camps. So it seems like it was very much um, rote learned answers that um, they they gave. The people who've left the country who were in these centres, they say that the, the ticket out of there is to say that you have been rehabilitated, that the, the party has... Um, has re- helped you find uh, f- find um, you know uh, the right way of life that helped you to um, get away from re- religious extremism and has uh, put you on the right path back to a back to a rehabilitated lifestyle. And was this the kind of thing then the the detainees? I suppose if that's the correct word, then where that was the kind of answer they were giving you? Was it the kind of story they were telling you? They all had pretty much identical stories at that. Um, so that they had um, they they had um, seen the error of their ways and that they were immensely grateful to the Communist Party for, for pointing out their, their faults and for helping to fix them. And did you get to visit, was it one particular centre or, or a number of different camps? I mean, how, how much time did you spend there? We were there for a few, several days, but we, in that, that time we were brought to two different camps. And uh, I think, of course, the, um, there are meant to be 180 camps. The government won't say, despite now they're, they're, they say there's transparency, they won't say how many camps there are and they won't say uh, how many uh, people have ever been through this system. So they're still quite secretive about it. But according to research from satellite imagery and so on, we can identify about 180 of these camps across the province, at least. Uh, we went to see two. The uh, level of security in the two that we that we saw was very, was comparatively low. It was like a, a, a low, secu- I would say, a low security prison or something. There was there was high walls and there was um, there were armed guards at gates and so on, but very low uh, security compared to some of the other um, buildings that we saw around the around the province that we were not allowed to uh, gain access to. That all had you know uh, uh, razor wire and watchtowers and. Um, and uh, much higher levels of security. It is presumed, but it's not uh, not um, can never be cannot be established that we're taking to the centres that uh, portray the image that the government wants to see, the public uh, the, and the international community to see, rather than the the more um, sort of sort of prison like structures that are apparently exist. 
And did you get any sense of the living conditions of the people? You say you visited classrooms, um, outside the classroom environment, you know, what kind of conditions these people are living in? It's like a boarding school. They call it, they call them sort of boarding schools. There's dormitories. We were the ones we went to see had like eight bed dormitories and four bunks, and some of them had five five bunks, ten bed, and uh, they were reasonable uh, conditions. They were like uh, any kind of third level uh, school in 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 China. You would often see similar similar conditions. Again, whether they were representative, um, the I did speak afterwards and I showed photographs afterwards to two or three experts who have been focusing on this issue for three years and they said they were not representative of the typical camps and that they were showpieces that uh, diplomats and journalists were brought to see. And, and what about your own ability to move around and, and, and to see whatever you wanted to see? Were your movements heavily restricted? They were. We were put on a bus every morning and brought around and uh, with, with police escorts and so on. In the nighttime, or the, we'd stop and, and we'd stay in a hotel. We were advised not to leave the hotel uh, individually or by ourselves with, uh, for our own security. Of course, um, we we did go for walks and wander out for some wander out for some snacks or for a late night beer occasionally and so on. Um, both I went a few times by myself and a couple of times with uh, with other journalists. And the second you leave the hotel, you're followed every step of the way by a couple of uh, plainclothes police. And they wander around very uh, sort of conspicuously close behind you and make sure you don't go too far. At one point, I was even by myself in, and um, I saw a taxi just pulling up and I jumped into the taxi and, and the taxi pulled away. And I thought I'd given the two, two police behind me the slip and we, we went down, drove for a few miles and he pulled up um, to some a restaurant street and I got out and there were two police waiting for me when I got out of the car on the other side. And the, the embarrassed taxi driver sort of just shrugged and said he was obligated to text ahead if he had a foreign fare and that they, they had to, he had to let, a, let people know that he, where he was dropping them off. So, um, so I, had, I had two new friends on the other side of, the, uh, of, of that journey and I was going in for a, a late night snack and a drink and I, invi- I struck up conversation with them, invited them in to join me and uh, they were kind of a bit taken aback and a bit abashed by that. But they sort of uh, said um, it was um, they, they weren't permitted to, um, to to come in and join, but they'd happily wait outside. I apologised for keeping them up late, and they they um, they said not at all, not at all. We appreciate the overtime we could do we could do with the extra money. So we appreciate your you being around and all your friends. So, so they don't pretend that they're not following you. I mean, are, are these guys in uniform? They're not in uniform. No, they kind they, they kind of try, try to pretend initially that they're not following you. And they, when you turn around, they fumble on their phones and they start looking around and look as if they're looking up and down for something or they they've lost something. But pretty uh, quickly, it just becomes so apparent and so obvious that it, they sort of drop the sham and just keep walking with you. And of course. Very often, you just turn around and strike up a conversation with them anyway, and just point out that you know that they're there. So, um, and uh, they're uh, they're they're very they're very closely monitoring everything. And this Peter was in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, that happened in Urumqi. It also happened in Kashgar and a few other cities we were in, in different different areas we were in. Urumqi is the capital. Very. Um, very high police presence. You know, it's it's considered like one of the most policed uh, cities in the world. Um, both, uh, I think, every every two hundred meters, there's what they call now these convenience police stations, where so it, you cannot go very far without seeing seeing a, a, a station that is um, manned by several police officers. And there are check uh, checkpoints um, all over the city that people have to stop and uh, they answer questions. There's a they they have to hand in their their, their mobile phones all the time and they're consistently scanned to see what um, and that shows up what they have been browsing 
yeah, who they've been texting, if they've been making overseas phone calls, any of these, uh, making overseas phone calls, having the WhatsApp application on your phone, that's all sufficient um, to warrant um, a, two, a two or three year stint in, a, in one of these camps. I don't know, Peter, you, you know, you've been living in China for, for quite a long time. Is this kind of level of security in, in Urumqi, is that new or has it been like that for some time? It certainly intensified after September 11 in the US and they, they, they had a similar war on terror at that point. Uh, in 2013, 2014, there were a few terrorist attacks, one in Beijing and uh, one in a southern city called Kunming and another a couple in, in Urumqi that were, uh, that Xinjiang separatists, they call themselves the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, they claimed responsibility for. So at that time, China certainly upped the, um, the, the security levels. They got very concerned about this uh, and they wanted to stamp out uh, any kind of sign of um, Islamic sort of, um, terrorism, and uh, there's a big, big pro-independence movement there. Most of the we- the Xinjiang um, Uyghurs there, they don't feel like they are Chinese. They come from they they're they're a Turkic people, the different uh, language, different religions, different cultural backgrounds, and so on. So, uh, uh, the territory has been long disputed over centuries. China says it has been it has belonged to China for for several hundred years, but uh, they dispute that. It has certainly been controlled by China since the founding of the People's Republic of China, but many feel like it should be an independent state, and China is very keen to stamp that out. The uh, Also, something that has further intensified was the major uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which was uh, Xi Jinping's major um, infrastructure initiative where he wants to invest a, a trillion dollars plus in in, in 100 countries right across the world, but starting primarily across Central Asia, the Xinjiang is a bridge into those countries. So it's a key sort of pivotal place along the old Silk Road. And the Belt and Road Initiative would not be able to succeed if Xinjiang was was, um, a province in turmoil. So that certainly um, accentuated the, the, um, the clampdown. And there is a, a terror threat existing there, isn't there? I mean, there have been attacks. There have been attacks. And then something, about 5,000 Uyghurs participated in the war in Syria over the past couple of years. Some fighting, a few hundred apparently fighting for ISIS, but apparently the majority of them fighting against ISIS. Most of them essentially just doing it um, as mercenaries just, just because it was, the, it, was, it was the work they could get. But that greatly um, concerned China and they were afraid that that would inspire them to come move uh, to bring a sort of a radical uh, sort of um, f- t- movement back to China to fight for a separate a separate Islamic state in China. That fear, uh, while a possibility is a very remote possibility, but they certainly did concern it did concern Beijing. And above all, they 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 value security and they value um, stability, and um, they want everyone um, assimilated into the sort of Chinese hand sort of way of life so to speak so uh, when these these uh, 11 million Uyghurs in in Xinjiang most of whom don't speak Chinese uh, so they don't af- and don't affiliate uh, with the Chinese state this was something of great concern to Beijing so this essentially social re-engineering project is part of trying to make them assimilate uh, into the Chinese way of life and to return then to the camps you, you touched there on what uh, if you like um, independent analysts and experts have had to say about them, um, they say these are detention camps, pure and simple. Is that correct? Yes, but there's no there's no indictment, there's no trial, and there's no fixed period of time for for any of the um, Chinese would call them students. Uh, you know, human rights activists call them detainees. 
so so they would be extrajudicial camps that they um, they are not um, a part of the legal structure and they, so they um, yeah they they would be detainment camps internment camps and do, do you need to have you know come before the courts in some way you know you mentioned how in some cases you've got a choice between accepting a sentence prison sentence or voluntarily in the British commas going into one of these camps but do you need to have been before the courts or do they is it more selective intervention? Can they just, if they don't like the look of you or think you're... There's no court system to uh, to, to uh, bring people into these. So they basically they talk about this as, as vo- purely voluntarily, uh, voluntarily institutions that people, people opt to enroll in. But of course, they're given a choice. It's a plea bargain, essentially, where they're given the choice of you take this as a... As a a period of time where we can educate you and and, uh, and, and you can go through a period of in, um, political ideology and indoctrination or you take the other option which is which is typically going into the prison service uh, which is which would be a lot more but do you need I'm wondering like would you need to have actually done something to come to the attention of the authorities or might you just happen to be from a family that has a background that uh, is is, un, is under suspicion or whatever the the number of the cases vary but a lot of it is extremely mild uh, like i say if you have if you have been browsing overseas um, websites that's sufficient if you have made phone calls of, to any relatives overseas that would be considered highly suspicious. If you have been if you have been abroad at all, uh, that would be sufficient uh, for you to go to a camp. The um, if you were if you wore um, uh, long beard, long beards have been banned since. But if you looked if you looked extremely religious, if you spent a lot of time praying per day, um, that would be sufficient. Uh, if you came from um, Sometimes people just purely um, uh, on their behaviour, if they were solitary figures and weren't very considered very social, that would be sufficient. In many of the counties, they say that it's a quota system that they would that they would be asked. The officials would be asked to take ten to twelve percent of the population and have them enrolled in these camps, and so they would just go and sweep up and, and make these and achieve these targets. So uh, it did seem to be, uh, of course. Anybody who had strong, who came from a strong Islamic background, who had a particularly sort of pious family or something, would be considered uh, particularly suspect and would would be invited in to have that conversation. And for how long might you be held in them? Is there a, a typical length of time? I think the, it seems on average the minimum is about one year, and then it moves up to about three years, from what we see. But the uh, the camps have only been in existence for two to three years, so it's, it's it's very hard to tell. Recently, just a few days ago, a government official said that ninety percent of the detainees or students, as they say, have been have graduated. Um, so they've they're now saying saying this, which is again difficult to verify especially when they don't tell us what what the full what the number of 100% is and and they but they now say this but what they're essentially saying then is they've transitioned from the education re-education um, facilities into the compulsory labor situation which is a, which is then a transitioning period where they move people into into factories that are basically um part of a continuing part of this system and it's clear, Peter, from what you said, that the Chinese authorities are engaging in a propaganda campaign in relation to the centres because, as you mentioned, they've gone from denying their existence to now inviting journalists in and showing them around. How do you think that campaign is working for them? Nothing seems to really fit. Um, the the 
when they what they say they they often contradict each other. A lot of the re- the independent research has been uh, that has um, come out that has disputed what the government says comes from their own documentation. You know, the the government um, procurement documents, the government uh, policy documents. So so in so many times these are online, these are available. All um, uh, these are published documents and so on. So what these what's government. Um, uh, the government papers and the government documents are actually seem to be contradicting the government themselves. And then, of course, there's the testimonies from all the detainees and and so on. All these people who, when they say 90% of people have now been released or, or have graduated in their terminology, the relatives are saying, well, if that is the case, where where are my relatives? And they're asking them to, um, w- there's a, an online um sort of a program now saying where is the 90% and they're asking the government to prove where are these people if and if my if my cousin or my brother or my uncle or my is, is now free can I meet them can I see them and they they haven't been produced so that is a, a big cause for worry Peter thank, thanks for those insights and people can read more of, of what you you saw and observed in, in Xinjiang on, on irishtimes.com before we let you go just to touch on another story we've covered with you here on the podcast and no doubt we'll be returning to it and that's the ongoing um situation in Hong Kong where the pro-democracy protests are continuing and the, the situation there, it's not really getting any better, is it? No, it's its not. It's, uh, it, it's really um, sort of um, has got very fiery and very uh, um, uh, the people have got uh, the anger is deepening on both sides and resentment uh, now in the past couple of weeks. the uh, It really hit a low point about 10 days ago when police were um, attacking protesters um, and then uh, protesters were were uh, really uh, raining bricks and petrol bombs down on police stations in retaliation. Uh, tear gas was was being fired everywhere. Uh, rubber bullets um, and um, you know, pepper uh, canisters and everything. People were being seriously injured. So it is. Um, it has really got into a dangerous point. That the proof that this on s- the Saturday's newspapers in Hong Kong, pretty much every newspaper led with the headline saying no tear gas in Hong Kong today you know so uh, so when that becomes unusual <laughs> um the uh, after 11 weeks of, of basically tear gas and, and uh, violent protests uh, you see you know the situation is um, is very unstable there's a lot of concern about the prospect of a military intervention by Beijing and we've seen the reports of China massing its forces just across the border how real is that threat do you think most analysts seem to think that that is highly unlikely. Uh, after the the Tiananmen massacre thirty years ago, China um, has, would be very reluctant to to do that again. It obviously realizes um, how how badly that, that resonates around the world and how badly it reflects upon them uh, as a nation and as a power. So they would it would be, I think, um, a very last resort to have them massing just across the border. And to flex some muscle is is one thing, and it's uh, it's it's um it's it's uh, it's maybe just more rhetorical. Whether to see them coming across the border and and uh, actually trying to crack down on on the protests would be um uh, it's it's hard to imagine they would take take that move. But um, we are, most people very much hope they will not. You know, it would make a bad situation much worse. What are the considerations Beijing has to? Would have in mind here. I mean, what might what would the, might the consequences be for China were it to do that? Well, after the Tiananmen massacre, they were isolated by the international community for several years, and uh, that would almost certainly happen again. Um, what uh, if, if, if their own citizenship were also um, horrified by that? Um, what uh, what would um, 
Hong Kong certainly would lose its position as being an international sort of uh, hub for trade and finance. There was, um, it would be, um, it would push China back in you know, decades, I think, if if they if they came in and um, and crushed people again like they like they have done before. Um, they, I think, they're hoping there's no need for that, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of immediate uh, resolution in sight and uh, any way to get over this impasse. They're perhaps hoping, hoping. I some analysts have said, and some politicians I spoke to said that it will run out of steam. That this is now coming into its third month. The umbrella movement ran out of steam after about three months in 2014. A lot of these protesters are school is of school age or are early university age, and of course the universities and schools are back open in a week or so, and they're hoping that then when people go back into that that they um, into that world that they, they might be less inclined. But it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, 1.7 million took to the streets on Sunday. Um, they're talking about getting two million people out to link arms right across the um, the uh, Hong Kong itself uh, to make a, a mass human chain on Friday. Uh, so it doesn't seem to be uh, losing steam at this point. The, um, it seems that China is trying to have this um, pr- arrest and prosecute way out of it, trying to intimidate people with, with uh, by arresting. They've arrested 750 people so far, many of them facing charges of rioting, which carry 10-year prison sentences. So they're hoping that that will, uh, will, in- will encourage other protesters to stay at home and to keep a lower profile. But of course, for the ones who were, for many of them now, that means if they're already facing a 10-year prison sentence for their efforts so far and they haven't won any concessions, that there is, they see there's no point in stopping now. They really have nothing left to lose. Do you see any possibility of a negotiated settlement here or does it look like a fight that you know both sides seem willing to, to take almost you know, to the finish? There is talk among some of the pro-democracy legislators now of trying to um, bring in some kind of truth and reconciliation commission or some kind of uh, independent platform like that where the two sides could come together and try to find some sort of way out of this because it seems to be very much in a downward spiral. Uh, the the protesters have five core demands and they're not um, none of them have been met and now it seems like they're, um, they're, their demands are, even, are intensifying and escalating. The but the key one they're asking for is universal suffrage, uh, one 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 person, one vote, and this is clearly not something that that Beijing is uh, is inclined to uh, to agree with. So uh, it seems that it's going to be it's going to be another a long way ahead of this before this is, is resolved. Peter, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.